Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. Now, six months into this Shelter and Solidarity project, we welcome you, all of our listeners and viewers, here as we are in our bi-monthly, twice-a-month format with a very, very special show for you today, featuring one returning speaker to Shelter and Solidarity and one very special new guest. We are joined today by Avi Chomsky, professor at Salem State University, just on the North Shore from where I'm broadcasting here in Dorchester, Massachusetts, author of several books, including Undocumented, A History of How Immigration Became Illegal in the United States, among other books, as well as Greg Grandin, the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for his terrific study, which I cannot recommend enough, The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. That we've titled today's show, uh, Trump's Walls Must Fall, but, and, and of course, with the election only weeks away, there's no way we can have this discussion without thinking about the particularities of the Trump regime and the politics, electoral and non, that are on the agenda or ought to be on the agenda here in the United States and beyond. But really, with both Avi and Greg here today for the show, I hope that we will dive into discussions which extend well beyond simply the immediate questions about Trump and Biden and, and the current offerings of American politics to really a rich discussion of the history that has brought us to this point. Uh, we have two thinkers here who know each other already. We were just chatting a bit before the show who have a conversation between themselves, but they're gonna share that conversation with us today. And with all of you who are listening and viewing, please do feel free to write your questions in the chat box and, and around an hour into the show as we always do here on Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, your voices are, are welcome to join the conversation. So please, please do join us as well. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, for those of you who don't know me, broadcasting from, from Dorchester, Massachusetts. Um, Greg and Avi, thank you for joining us here. Let's just make sure the technical side is working here. Uh, we can only hear you, see you when we hear you here in Zoom land. So Greg, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great. And Avi, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here. Before you know it, Avi, you're going to be an organizer of this show. You've, you've been a kind of silent co-producer <laughs> on a couple episodes already. So I wanted to start today by just asking you both a kind of broad question that just allows you to kind of position yourselves and your work in relationship to 2020 in the USA. Um, you know, maybe we could start with, with Greg and then bring in Avi uh, as Greg, the new voice here on our show. And, um, you know, Greg... Um, how, from your perspective as a historian and coming out fresh out of the work in this, this really amazing book, The End of the Myth, um, how does the year 2020 appear to you? How does the current um, political discourse in the United States appear to you? And what, you know, based on your historical study, kind of what, you know, how does the history that you have presented us with in this, this book kind of um, shaped and highlighted Kind of aspects of our present situation that that maybe weren't as visible before or that you think that that aren't getting the attention that maybe they deserve yeah well, i mean 2020 seems a whirlwind i mean who could keep up i mean this i mean so many things happen at such a at such a fast break pace that breakneck pace it's hard to it's hard to keep a a kind of a pulse on on what's going on and there's so many different fronts of outrage you know there's the, the outrage that's going on within the Trump administration, obviously, and everything that Trump represents. And then, of course, there's everything that that that's that 
that will linger on after Trump is defeated and that will still be there, that is no source of outrage. And there's the discourse surrounding how to think about Trump and, um, and you know, which seems at times almost uh, uh, in, intended to divert away from the, the problem. You know, Trump is a fascist, Trump is a, you know, this, he's, you know, Trump is exceptional to U.S. history, seems as a way of absolving, having to contend with the long, long history of how, of how, of how we got here. So, I mean, I, you know, just to, you know, I take Trump as the end of the empire. I mean, to put it as simply as possible, and this isn't an argument that, that is new, other people have made this argument, but what made the United States powerful and exceptional and able to hold up its brand of liberal centrism as a universal model for the rest of the world to follow was constant expansion at the right of constant ceaseless expansion, not just across the land and frontier, but economically and military, but then also to transform expansion into a kind of messianic goal, or at least a way of organizing domestic politics. You know, no matter how bad things got here, you could always promise that things will be better over there. Once we get over there, whether we get to the China market, or you know, and um, and I think Trump, I think I think Trump is a symptom, a manifestation of what happens when that is no longer the case. When, to put simply, the economic collapse of the neoliberal growth model, the collapse of the neoconservative military model, which it's not that we're not fighting wars, but those wars are no longer be, can be held up as, as wars for humanity. And of course, the thing that stands over it all, climate change. The limits are real and 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 insurmountable. We live in a we live in a we live in a qualitatively different world. And and I and, and Trump is is Trumpism is what we get when when the United States can no longer use constant expansion either to organize domestic politics to 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 project its its contradictions outward to roll over the trauma from the last war into the next war and he's what happens when you know the phrase the war come home comes home is 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 has been has been used often but but he is what happens when when the war can no longer be exported and that's and that's basically my argument of, of the book that you mentioned, uh, The End of the Myth. Absolutely right, which I believe, I, I hope I mentioned, is the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for, for fiction, fiction for nonfiction, rather, <laughs> even though it we may wish. explain, explain, it's, some of it is dark I enough. Don't, it, the, I, don't strong, the, I don't draw a strong distinction between those two. You, you, you do cite, <laughs> I, I do believe you. You, what you happened? Do, you went you went silent there for a second. Yeah, you do you do cite Cormac McCarthy, I believe, at one point, right? I do think there is there yeah, is a blood way meridian. Which, yeah. blood meridian. Um, no, the the bloody dystopia of some of these accounts in these uh, in these chapters, really, I think, could be many people might assume they're fiction if, if they if they if they weren't uh, if they weren't uh, familiar with your work already. Um, so we'll, we'll come back to that. And thank you for framing that uh, broadly. I think that's a very, very, um, very provocative and interesting kind of opening statement, Greg. So let's let's bring in Avi with the same kind of. <laughs> breadth of a question i mean maybe and and there's also welcoming avi's response to 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 greg's kind of framing 
comment. I mean, Avi also is someone who works on history and, and political issues that kind of transgress the border. You're very much, I think both of you kind of putting the border or issues related to, we often people think about the border, the edges of the country at the center, right? I think both in different ways, really drawing out the way in which things that are often we ideologically, if not materially confined to the border or the frontier really speak to the heart of of contradictions and issues in the United States. So Avi, how, did, how does 2020 look to you right now through the lens of the history uh, and the scholarship that, that you've been producing as well as through the, the lens of Greg's work? So um, I just finished a sabbatical on during which I wrote a new book, which is on the history of Central America, um, which is almost pretty much where I started my historical career way back all those years ago in graduate school. Um, both my political and my academic career, I guess. Um, and the title of my new book, which is coming out in April, um, which I've spent a good part of the last year working on, uh, is Central America's Forgotten History, um, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. And um, returning to, I mean, there's been so much written uh, on, on Central America, Central American history. So there was a whole new literature for me to get familiar with, much of it by Greg. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me uh, writing about the 1980s, especially, although my book also goes back further in history, obviously, but, but just thinking about today, writing about the 1980s is one, um, shortly after Trump was elected and when everybody started talking about like Trump is something just so different from anything we've ever had before. And I was kind of asking myself, is Trump really that different from Reagan, from Nixon? Like we've had some really off the wall presidents before. Um, and then I wrote an article that uh, got pretty widely circulated that um, asked if Trump was an aberration by comparing his immigration policy to Obama's immigration policy. And of course, Obama had much more like pretty soft and nice language about immigrants, but in terms of Obama's actual policies, and Obama wasn't the inventor of these policies either, as Greg talks about in the book, and I talk about in my book undocumented, um, these, these white settler colonial ideology goes way back in US history. It is US history in a way. And I always like to um, begin my talks on US history by throwing out the concept of settler colonialism and asking how many people in the audience have heard of this concept and nobody's heard of it. And it's like, well, you've all studied American history and you've never heard of settler colonialism. It's like the elephant in the room. You just walk or study around it without studying it. Um, but so, but, but one thing that also was just really um, tragic about study, going back to the 1980s was thinking about how much hope we all had then for the revolutions that were happening in Central America. Um, the Nicaraguan revolution and uh, the Salvadoran revolution, the Guatemalan revolution and how, how little hope we seem to have now um, so yeah, I mean, I don't have to list all the terrible things that have happened in 2020, um, and are continuing to happen. And, um, but, but I do think it's really useful to look back at both the, the, 
the historical, how deeply rooted historically some of the terrible things that are happening are, um, but also the other side of the coin at the, um, at the projects of resistance in the past that can give us hope, I guess, not to and sound really Pollyanna-ish, but uh, yeah, okay, I'll leave yeah, it there. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I, hoping, Avi, that you would, I knew that you would keep speaking after posing that question of where is the hope today? Um, you know, something we, we definitely do want to address, you know, where are the, you know, the what is the, you know, objective and subjective, I guess, uh, basis for for hope in this, in this, moment, which is dark in many ways. Well, um, let me just say one yeah, more thing ahead, um, to, to continue that thought now that you've put it that way, which is that um, I think that unless we can honestly face the past, we don't have a basis to start constructing the future that we want. And that's why I feel like the the message of Greg's book is so important for hope, even though it's not necessarily a very hopeful message. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the hope is, in it is that as long as we're deluding ourselves by thinking about how great we are, it's virtually impossible to um, start to think about the changes that we need to make. Yeah, well said. And I mean, directing that back to you, Greg, um, you know, I mean, I didn't intend to kind of jump into the end of your book, you know, before, you know, I do want us to kind of work back through some of the, sure, sure. the, the story you tell, but, but, but I think it, I think it's useful. I mean, and, and obvious, both of your comments have, have directed me this way. Um, do you, um, I mean, how do you see, you know, the end of the myth, as you talk about the end of this myth, this ideological belief, and uh, perhaps more than just ideological uh, kind of structure of policies that was based on the premise of perpetual expansion Right, what understood in various terms. How does this this crisis of the you know the this end of the myth kind of change the outlook for uh, politics within the United States as you see it? Because I did see a hopeful a hopeful thread in 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 your book in your in your conclusion, even though you know part of the story is the rise of Trump and the border wall as a kind yeah. of icon. Yeah. So how do you see the end of the Absolutely. myth as kind of yeah setting up you know restaging so American politics? In but and, and to just to start off with the question about what is unique about Trump is is I agree absolutely with with Avi that that I mean there's a there's an historical reference uh, you know I mean there's nothing that there's nothing about Trump himself and his policies that are unique I mean you know in terms of deregulation in terms of anti-migration and in, in ter you know in terms of um, you know Obama deporting more. Uh, asylum seekers than Trump did, or, or certainly a larger number of them. Uh, and even in terms of his lunacy. Yeah, his lunacy. I know, even in terms of, like, yeah, sure, there was Nixon, and <laughs> there's lots of, there was, there's been lots of, uh, there's been lots of, but I think what Trump does is that, I just the focus on the deportation and, and, and the contrast with Obama, is that I think what's unique about Trump, Trump is that he turns it into a spectacle. Where Obama quietly deported and and you know he, he inherited a deportation regime that was basically built by Clinton. I mean, it has that, as Avi knows, as a lot of people know, it has deep roots in the militarization of the border that goes back at least until the 1840s, with qualitative leaps at different moments. But certainly, 
in in the early 1990s with the passage of NAFTA and the militarization of the border that that happened under Clinton, the border becomes a site, a new site of politics that has a profound effect on the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in all sorts of ways. And, um, and in many ways, there was a bipartisan, bipartisan consensus of, 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 of um, securing the border, finding some way to kind of deal with the people here, you know, one-off amnesty or whatever, um, but, but, but a, 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 certainly a bipartisan consensus with, de- with militarizing the border. Obama kind of inherited uh, the, the, the climax of that in terms of the waves of children migrants that, that showed up in 2014 and in the different years. And Obama quietly continued, you know, responded like predecessors did by, you know, processing some and sending most back. What's different about Trump is that he turns it into policy. It turns it into spectacle. It becomes part of the culture wars. It becomes a it, it becomes part of a process in which cruelty becomes an emblem of freedom. Like the, the more cruel you are, the more free you are. And I think I think this has deep roots in the United States. Not to not to get all this deep in the woods uh, or in the weeds, but you know the United States beholds to a concept of freedom as freedom from restraint. There's other ways of thinking about freedom. There's freedom, there's social freedom, there's freedoms in which, and that could entail social rights, building community, have thick uh, moral relations between people. But the United States has for a long time kind of held up and celebrated a notion of freedom as freedom from restraint. It turns out that freedom from restraint requires quite a degree of restraint. It, <laughs> it requires a, an enormous carceral system, and, you know, an enormous penitentiary system, and it requires an enormous army. And um, and its cultural expressions, you know, there were, you know, it always had, it always has manifested itself in cultural expressions going back, you know, since the rise of mass culture. But what we see under Trump is is cruelty becoming part of that freedom as freedom of restraint. Who's going to tell me I can't burn diesel fuel in my truck? Who's going to tell me I can't torture people? Who's going to tell me I can't shoot people? There's a way in which Trump represents the real degradation of, you know, in which it, in which the in which all of the high-sounding parts of American exceptionalism, which you know, you know, we could talk about, and we could talk about how much was real and how much was how much was um, wasn't real and how much was a deception, but you know, where Trump really represents the end of that. So so deportation, the wall constantly talking about sexual violence on the border. Um, you know, and there were, there were there were expressions of it in other ways, pulling out of the Paris, uh, Paris, you know, not caring about climate change, you know, obviously is his deep commitment to, to militarizing civil society and urban politics. But Trump certainly started out by by the using the wall as a symbol of the failure of the old multilateral liberal order, um, and 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 you know the you know the old liberal order, you know, was based on the delusion that all boats could rise, that there was formal equality between nations, that there was processional, um, there was 
there was there's procedural liberalism that you know if we all played by the rules of the game everybody would have a seat at the table you know obviously that obviously that was that was a that was not true obviously if you look at the history of the united states empire that was that in, in terms of the raw materials that it uses in terms of the waste it produces in terms of the power it exercises uh that that the, the very, very basic premises that justified the liberal order were a lie and 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 trump came along and said it's a lie and there's no and there's no and there's no better symbol of that than the border wall and 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 turning the cruelty towards children towards families injecting children with drugs the hysterectomies all of the violence it's never ending it's a never ending parade of horrors that you hear at the border, that all becomes part of the pageantry of a new kind of uh, 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 a new kind of ideology, new kind of realism. But I just want to end by saying one quick thing. It's tempting to believe that Trump represents, and, and his defenders say, kind of Trumpism represents a, a more realistic and honest way of looking at the world. I mean, look at the failure of the liberal order. The order you know, not all boats can be lifted. We have reached the end of the frontier. We, there are limits. And, and, and Trump's, so, but there's a temptation to think of Trump as a more realistic, as a more, more honest way of looking at the world. But the fact is that it's just as enchanted and mystical. He, you know, he's saying, all we have to do is build a wall and we can continue doing what we're doing, which is as fantastical as the old liberal order was, but in a different, but 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 in a different way, you know. So that, that's right. what I think. And really, I mean, you've you've spoken and hit some of these points you put so eloquently in the last couple paragraphs of the book. But the way you know, you talk about not only an American exceptionalism, but an American exemptionism, right? As if America can be exempt literally from like the the laws of nature, right? Of 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 even you know the the principles of science right as well as well as humanity I mean it almost seems to, you know my my attempt at like a paraphrase of of you know this this idea of yours it's almost like you know rather than consider limits on how we understand freedom and what it's permissible to do to other people to the natural world Trump's vision his myth his the new myth is that we'll just limit the number of people who get access to humanity yeah. itself right yeah and we can still have everything we have now we just have to make sure it's we keep out most people because it we can have everything we wanted but just for a few just yeah. for the truly exactly. american right i mean i don't want to jump in and take take obvious time but let me just quickly say and in response to the premise the question of the or first question about politics of hope i mean when you recognize that there are limits to the natural world that you can't have endless capitalist growth there's basically only two responses. One response is we've seen through the history of the United States at different times, particularly the New Deal, where you try to create a new conception of social citizenship in which, in which you know, the state is more involved in redistributing resources and, and you have a much more planned way of imagining uh, your dealings with nature or dealings with other people you know, New Deal had its, it was extremely limited, but it was something, but it was an alternative to this freedom as freedom from restraint. That's one alternative. The other alternative is, is this brutalism, is this, this realism. You know, it's like Naomi Klein says, the only thing scarier than, than, than uh, 
than these white supremacists who are running around denying climate change are white supremacists who, who realize that climate change is a real thing, you know, because there is, because, you know, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it's an old, it's an old argument that has long been tied to the right that the, there is no frontier and we, and the frontier is closed and we have to build, we have to build a world organized around lines of domination in which white Anglo-Saxon powers continue to, are able to extract the majority of resources and enjoy the benefits of wealth. Um, you know, the alternative to that is, 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 is some form of social, de social democracy that, that imagines more, you know, that imagines, you know, that sees limits and says that, okay, let's, let, let's turn and face each other instead of constantly fleeing forward and avoiding our problems. Yeah, I mean, you close your book with the line, coming generations will face a stark choice, a choice long deferred by the emotive power of frontier universalism but set forth in vivid relief by recent events, the choice between barbarism and socialism, or at least social democracy, right? Yeah. So kind of return, right? And I mean, in, in your Nation article of 2016, I think you used the term also the great evasion, right? That the, the border ideology or bo front, rather frontier ideology or frontier policies kind of created this possibility of evading class contradictions, racial conflicts, right, internal to the United States, constantly putting them off. They'll be resolved someday, right, yeah. someday. Uh, and, that, and that there may be possibilities for real radical change in the best sense of the world in no longer having that illusion of an outlet, as if you, a yeah. liberal growth can get us through this on its own, yeah. right? Yeah, and again, these are not new arguments, and I don't make any claim. The, in, in, in effect, it's a revival of a new left understanding of American empire. Okay. And, you know, the question and debate is, what is the mechanisms by which expansion solves domestic problems. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about that. Right, you know? and we, um, and we and could get into that. We could yeah. get into that. I don't know if Avi would, would like to, to lead the way on that now, or we wanna go a slightly different direction, but this question of, was the belief that so many, as you document, so many ruling elites throughout, you know, over centuries held to be true, that the only way the United States could hold together in one way or another was to grow, expand, and whether to what degree that was an ideological belief primarily, and to what degree it was based in some kind of material necessity, right? That the sense of that, you know, unless there was a foreign market, right, that you'd have a crisis of overproduction in the kind of classic Marxist sense. So we could we could dive deep in that way, but but I kind of wanted to pitch things back to, to Avi and, and welcome her to back into the conversation. Um, I mean, Avi, obviously you're someone who's worked on Central American history, Latin American history, uh, U.S. kind of. Uh, global political economy, and particularly on immigration. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, kind of, you know, what struck you most in, in uh, you know, kind of reading Greg's book in terms of like, you know, how, what immigrate, you know, how immigration, an immigration perspective, an immigration history or history of the U.S. and immigration kind of intersects with this history of kind of the U.S. and as a, as frontier empire uh, and as, as kind of border brutality. I, I just wondered like how, how you see the intersection between kind of your own work on immigration and kind of Greg's work on, on the kind of crisis of the empire? Well, one of the contradictions in US ideology about immigration and US policies towards immigration, um, and I should say that um, that uh, the United States was 
founded as a settler colonial country, as a country of by and for white people. It's right there in the Declaration of Independence. It's there in the first uh, naturalization laws um, passed by the new country, the citizenship laws, uh, that it's a country of by and for white people. Um, so when we hear people like uh, President Obama and other liberal uh, spokespeople saying, we're a country of immigrants. We're a country that has always welcomed immigrants. Um, uh, there's something deeply dishonest about that because we're a country that has always welcomed white immigrants. And here I tie into Greg's book that is, we're a settler colonial country. We're a country that welcomed white immigrants in a settler colonial project to dis possess a native population and enslave a population of Africans, white immigrants. Immigrants meant white people because only white people could be citizens of the country for the first 100 years. So when we say we're a country that has always welcomed immigrants, um, we should not, first of all, it's, uh, it's a country that has always welcomed white immigrants and that should not be a point of pride. That is the fact that we've always welcomed immigrants is a demonstration of the racism that, that founded the country and, and that has characterized it forever. So, um, you know, when did we stop welcoming immigrants? When did we start turning against immigrants? Is when the laws started to change, um, especially after the Civil War and citizenship by birth was created. Um, and also after the Civil War, uh, naturalization was extended to people of African nativity and African descent with a revision of the naturalization law in 1870. Um, and in 1868, the 14th Amendment creates citizenship by birth. So clearly what Congress had in mind in changing these laws was the population of free black, free, the new population, large population, free black population in the country. Who were they? What could they be? Well, we have to extend citizenship to them. That's like the, the reconstruction uh, idea, but that still did not mean welcoming immigrants from non-white immigrants from elsewhere in the world. Um, because it's immediately after citizenship by birth is created that exclusions, racially based <laughs> exclusions start to be passed like the Chinese Exclusion Act. So these racially based exclusions are based precisely on this naturalization law of 1870, which expands citizenship naturalization rights to people of African nativity and African descent. Now, this is something that means practically nothing because there is not, nobody from Africa trying to migrate to the United States at the time. So it's a law that goes there on paper, but it doesn't apply to any actual immigrants from Africa because there are none in the, in the aftermath of centuries of enslavement, kidnapping, forced transport, et cetera. Um, but there are immigrants from other places, other non-white immigrants, um, coming from places like China. So the naturalization law is used to say, well, they're not white, they're not of African descent, therefore they are racially ineligible to citizenship. So everybody who is not white or of African nativity or African descent is racially ineligible to citizenship and is thus prohibited from entering the country because if they were allowed to enter, 
they could have children who would be citizens by birth, and that would be a logical impossibility because they're racially ineligible to citizenship. So, I'm, I'm, so, okay, so we have not always welcomed immigrants and suddenly we started not welcoming immigrants. Um, immigrants from Mexico and Central America, who are obviously the ones that the wall is aimed at, um, were also always treated differently and specially under Im US immigration law, not because they were considered immigrants and invited to be citizens. And I should say that really until the 1980s, we're talking primarily about immigrants from Mexico. That is uh, large scale migration from Central America didn't start until the 1980s. But immigrants from Mexico were also not considered, not invited to be, not welcomed as real immigrants. They were welcomed as temporary migrant workers, especially after the doors to Asia were closed and immigrants from Asia were no longer allowed to come to the United States. Mexican workers were absolutely essential to the economic development of the Southwest and West of the United States, the mines, the agriculture, the railroads. Um, Mexican labor was absolutely essential. Mexicans were not welcomed as immigrants, but there were exception after exception after exception built into the law to allow temporary seasonal workers, generally under strict control of their bosses, to come work and go home without staying long enough to take advantage of citizenship by birth. So, so I mean, even Obama himself, when he, he made this statement about something like, we have always welcomed immigrants to our shores. Which shores are you talking about? You're talking about the Atlantic, right? You're talking about Ellis Island. So when we tell the history of immigration, we tend to tell it as a history of European immigration because we're a country that has always welcomed European immigrants. Now, I know somebody out there is thinking, oh, but the Irish weren't considered white, the Jews weren't considered white, the Italians were discriminated against. Yes and no. Under the law, they were always considered white. Um, that's why they were always able to naturalize to become citizens because they were legally considered white. Yes, there was discrimination. Yes, there was prejudice. Yes, there was racism against them, but they were always legally white. Um, so I guess I would say moving forward and thinking, but thinking about the US attitude towards the border, the wall, Mexican migrants, Mexican and Central American migrants. Um, it's been a kind of a, a contradictory, um, on the one hand, need for immigrant labor, uh, but need for that labor to be hated and exploited. That is the best way to exploit workers is to keep them legally vulnerable. And the best way to justify this is racism. So, um, so, you know, Trump himself hired undocumented Mexican workers in his hotels and golf courses, right? The entire elite caste of the United States relies on Mexican labor. To say nothing of the middle classes, we also rely on Mexican and Central American labor. Um, but the system only works that when people can be legally and socially marginalized. 
and anti-immigrant racism plays the role of justifying legal and social marginalization. Yeah, Avi, I mean, that's powerful. I mean, thank you for so much of that history and, and that closing comment there. I mean, it really raises the question of like the cynicism of, of ruling class uh, entities that, that consciously uh, or structurally kind of fan anti-immigrant sentiment as they still themselves, you know, willfully or even anti-illegal immigrant sentiment, even as they they consciously exploit, uh, super exploit uh, undocumented workers in their own their own uh, business establishments or homes. I mean, it. it uh, I mean, I often think, right? I mean, you know, would we'll talk with my students and say, I mean, you know, a lot of this anti-immigrant sentiment. Although in the Trump era, I'm wondering about this, Greg. Thinking about you, you know, I mean, but in the you know, historically, I think the overt anti-immigrant sentiment is is not is not to be understood literally. It's not like they these people or at least the entities behind them funding them really want to get rid of all undocumented workers in a mass deportation. It would be not, I mean, even if they don't have a, a moral qualm about it, the, the expense and the, 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 the loss of exploitable labor would just totally destroy the economy from their standpoint, right? So really what they want is to scare, right? And terrorize immigrant workers and, and, and people who work with them so that they won't feel able to assert their full rights, that they won't be able to organize unions, that they won't be able to talk back to harass, harassing employers, right? So it seems to be, I mean, this, I guess, maybe brings up that question of spectacle and Trump's kind of not necessarily a quantitative increase in the number of deportations per se, but in the kind of changing nature of how those deportations occur. I mean, I, Avi, I'd actually like to put back to you before we maybe go back to Greg, on maybe a different note here, but I mean, you posed the question somewhat rhetorically, how different is Trump really from Obama with respect to the issue of immigration and other kind of issues kind of clustered around the, the border? I'd actually, I'm sure you have some more thoughts of your own about what has changed and what hasn't. I mean, I, I suspect that you, you wouldn't say nothing's changed, even though you do want to correct that liberal mystifying narrative that makes it seem like everything was fine. So, I mean, could I, could I hear a little more from you on on what how you would say, you know, what is different, if anything, about about Trump regarding, you know, immigration policy, border related policy, and uh, as well as kind of rhetoric and ideology? Um, well, I think this also relates to Greg's book, but also to a, a long history going all the way back to W.B. Du Bois of um, uh, like critical race theory history, um, that one of the things that Trump does, I think, differently from Obama is this um, appeal to uh, nativism and, and explicit racism that is appeals to the white working class. Um, to pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, um, uh, that is to 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 not leave space to look at the real causes of working class suffering in the United States today, but instead to blame it all on immigrants. Right. So the op that open embrace of that position, and and particularly. Pair of, you know, kind of parroting a working class, white working class uh, grievance in, in his own ruling class way. Um, Greg, I'd like to go back to you and, you know, really see if we could dig into a little bit of history here. I mean, one of the things I, I really valued about reading your book, I mean, it seemed like a book that was very much written in light of the present, but it was also, but it wasn't just kind of instrumentalizing, you know, kind of 
cherry picked episodes from the past to kind of say, see, here's Trumpism a hundred years ago, uh, you know, already, but really, I mean, a very deep and learned dive into so many different historical moments. And I mean, so there are a number of like familiar, you know, famous historical figures, including like people on our money, right? Or on their money or whatever, on the money uh, who appear in your book, you know, Andrew Jackson, right? Um, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, comes in, you know, several times within the book, as well as some lesser known figures. And I, I wondered if you might share with us, uh, you know, if, for our viewers and listeners, kind of, you know, a couple, maybe a, a story or anecdote. I mean, I, there were some just shocking episodes, right? I mean, as much as I know, you know, Teddy Roosevelt or Andrew Jackson are associated with racism, slave owning, open embrace of imperialism, there was some juicy, bloody, you know, kind of, um, but also very insightful kind of stories that you tell about some of these kind of so-called well-known figures. I wondered if you might zoom in on one of the familiar figures and maybe, and then maybe on a figure that's not so familiar. I mean, one, one I mean, I had never heard of Harlan Car Carter before, for instance, who seemed like a really interesting figure to draw in and the story you tell there. I don't, not that you have to go with Harlan Carter, but I, I mean, maybe you do now that I've said it, but I would love to hear maybe, you know, if you could share with us like a story or an angle on a kind of familiar American figure who's maybe in our discourse today in some prominent sure. ways, and then maybe someone who's kind of missing that you think might, sure, sure, sure. might be beneficial to kind of restore. So, I mean, you mentioned Andrew Jackson and Trump is often compared to Andrew Jackson and there's been plenty, there's been plenty of op-eds written about how the Tea Party is and the Trump supporters like, uh, you know, their favorite president is Andrew Jackson. And he is a good uh, kind of avatar of, of the current moment. He is a symbol of this notion of freedom as freedom from restraint. He's, he, I believe he's the eighth, seventh president elected, maybe the eighth, comes after John Quincy Adams. He represents the next generation, right? So the first generation of presidents, uh, you know, they imagined America across the continent, you know, and, and, and filled with Anglo-Saxon stock, but they but they, but they could, they didn't have the means to make it happen. I mean, Mexico was in the first Spain, then Mexico was in the way. Native Americans uh, uh, freed and and unfree African Americans. Andrew Jackson and the Jacksonians that followed him really unleashed that raw power of American dynamic market capitalism to push forward. And you know, it wasn't Jackson who took Mexico, but he certainly set off the set off the set off the 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 propulsion that led to the taking of Mexico and the reaching of Pacific. So there's a great story of, and Jackson is very much a symbol, uh, uh, represents that kind of freedom as freedom from restraint. You know, who, who are you to tell me what to do? So there's a great story of these, you know, he's also the only president that we know to have personally transported slaves. I mean, you know, we know, we know, <laughs> we know mostly, we know a lot of presidents were slave owners. But Jackson was actually a slave trader, and he personally moved slaves from one market to another. And he was on an indigenous trail, the Natchez Trail, Natchez Trace, that connected Nashville down to um, down to down to New Orleans, down to down to the Gulf of Mexico, and um, and it passed through indigenous territory. And he had a group of he had a group of, of, of enslaved Africans with them. And you know, this was the fact. This was around 1811. So the federal government was trying to establish its authority. Federal government was by no means, you know, uh, an activist government working on behalf of, 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 of the victims of settler colonialism, but it was trying to establish federal power over the various territories and relations of the nations. 
and uh, especially and so the agent the indian agent that that jackson ran into had the nerve to ask jackson if he had proof that he owned those slaves because this was 1811 the constitution had just banned the slave trade there was a lot of contraband in from the gulf of mexico the federal government was trying to crack down on that on that contraband jackson flew into a rage i'll show you my i'll show you my passports and he's you know one story has him pulling out his his guns, you know, and another person has him pulling out the Constitution. This is the only paper I need, and um, and uh, the agent let him let him pass, and um, and Jackson spent the next year getting that agent basically blacklisted from federal government, and he was so incensed that he was asked to see his paper. So and he. And then one of the letters that he wrote, you know, is that it, it, you know, is this freedom or is this slavery? You know, it, you know, it's almost like a dream. So he's hallucinating the idea that um, that be that that somehow being asked for papers to prove that you are the owners of slaves is akin to actual slavery, suffering slavery itself. And I think that this is a bellicosity that is very recognizable down the ages. You know, who's gonna tell us to wear a mask? It's slavery. Who's gonna tell us that we have to, you know, that we have to, that we can't ranch our, you know, that we can't graze our cattle here. You know, there's a certain, this is what I mean by freedom from freedom from restraint. So that's one story. Um, another, you're asking for a story from somebody who is uh, who's a little bit more obscure. One of the, another argument in the books is how a lot of the, brutal racism that uh, that characterizes settled colonialism was marginalized in the United States, both ideologically through the myth of the frontier. The myth of the frontier allowed people who, had, even if they acknowledged the violence of indigenous dispossession, could make the argument that, you know, that we'll get to a liberal future, that extremism will fall to the wayside, that all will be included. You at least imagine a, a dis, so it was a discourse that, margin, that, that that could marginalize racist violence. And one of the arguments of the books is that the border is a place that actually physically marginalized a lot of the violence. I mean, you know, they, there was you know, a lot of, so much race violence continued throughout the history of the United States on what was the border. Harlan Carter was the son of a border patrol agent um, I think in the town of Laredo, and um, <clears throat> and uh, a lot of those early Border Patrol agents were members of the KKK. The Border Patrol was basically a concession to white supremacists who lost the debate over immigration law in the 1920s, where the, that, that famous immigration law in the 1920s, which put high quotas on non-white countries in terms of immigration, basically cut immigration off from Asia to zero and gave, you know, High preference to to, to Protestant Northern Europe, Northern European countries. Um, the border patrol was basically a concession to to uh, oh, but the people that were exempt from that quota system were Mexicans because ranchers wanted their labor, so Mexicans could still come into the United States. The, the creation of the border patrol was a, was a concession to white supremacists who lost the national debate about Mexican quotas on Mexican migrants.
and um, and and racists, and you know, a lot of KKKs, uh, uh, members of, of 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 state, the Texas Rangers, which you know operated functionally as a death squad in Texas, um, and um, and 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 local police department. Um, I don't know who Holland Carter's father was, but he was a, he was a member of the Border Patrol during this during this early period. And I think in the 1930s, uh, um, Holland Carter's mother got into a little fight with a bunch of teenagers, Mexican teenagers. I think they were Mexican American. I think they were citizens. And he killed one of them, and uh, and shot him dead. You know, in cold blood. The, you know, got the, you know, there was no there was no gun. There was no weapon to justify. There was no assault to justify it. Harlan Carter goes on to be a Border Patrol himself. He goes on to be the director of the Border Patrol and, and, and the head of Operation Wetback, which was which was really an upscaling of Border Patrol operations in the 1950s to deport hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of undocumented workers. And then he goes on after he retires from the cook from the from the border patrol. After he retires in the Border Patrol. He goes on to, um, to 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 hold high office in the in in the National Republic National Rifle Association, and he was involved in 1977. There was a coup within the right National Rifle Association between moderates, whatever they were in 1977, and a hard you know hard right you know that wanted to take the 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 you know that wanted to align the NRA with other groups within the growing constellation of the new right. And Harlan Carter helped orchestrate that coup and, and went on to lead the NRA into its more extreme position. So there's two, there's two, um, yeah. there's two historical anecdotes. No, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I don't mean to ask you to just re-narrate your whole book here, you know, let you just cover, you know, two chapters or something. But, but I think both of those anecdotes, um, those of those stories, uh, really capture really important points. I mean, the last one really suggests the way in which something that, you know, again, an event that might seem marginal, right? I mean, you know, to American history, right? You know, kind of violence on the border, right? Might seem like, oh, that doesn't have much to do with the heart of America, ends up kind of producing an individual or, you know, uh, you know that uh, that then becomes a formative influence in this kind of yeah, right-wing yeah. group that's now, right, the NRA at the center of so many, yeah. you know, debates. It's a good example of the, what I call a nationalization of border brutalism. Right. Mm. The, then you know how the you know how border brutalism becomes nationalized. It becomes the central central in national politics. The nationalization of border brutalism. I think that's you know a great really sharp phrase to so many of them in this in this text. And then the other one with with the, the Andrew Jackson. I mean, you really and this is a theme throughout your book, which I think culminates in the conclusion you've already kind of spoken to a bit with Trump. But is this notion of freedom as freedom from restraint? And as you were speaking, you know, the other place in your book that really stands out is regarding kind of the history of the kind of Southern white supremacist uh, post-Civil War kind of response to Reconstruction, right? And, and I mean, we still hear this in the United States today under the rubric of states' rights, right? And everything yeah. that follows so much. So under, I mean, I don't know if you would say a few words about that uh, now, but I mean, it seems like that's another, I mean, it seems like a, a couple different ways in which you, you know, this notion of a kind of freedom as defined as freedom from restraint as, as well, it was really like these obviously have deep roots in political thought and political theory right and social compact theory that go back to right. Locke and other people but it was really the the jacksonian period where it becomes a cult the cult of the minimal state and 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 the and 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 the it was meant to both forestall 
abolitionism, you know, and states' rights. For, you know, it was basically to, meant to maintain a strong, uh, uh, strong individual states to defend slavery. But also there was this there was this vision that they had very clearly that that emancipation would require the construction of what we today would call a social state. It would have to deal with the problems of society. And, and one Southern polemicist after another defender of slavery understood this very clearly, that, the, that if we want to make that, that emancipation will bring about, um, you know, greater taxation, greater intervention in all realms of social life. And, 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 and it was under the Jacksonian period that they evolved this myth of the, the, the minimal state that went back, that kind of, that kind of, um, in, it, it was invented, like, you know, there's, there's certainly talk of this during the founding period, but it's reinvented and ideologized during the Jacksonian period of the 1930, 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, a little after the Civil War. The Civil War and, the, and, 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 and Reconstruction is a direct assault on that. You have the Reconstruction has run out of an occupying military government that is involved in education, in, in trying cases, in labor relations, in healthcare. It was the, it was the nightmare of the, and, and, you know, and, and my book spends a lot of time talking about how the, how, how the Jacksonian consensus regarding the role of the state gets revitalized and mostly through expansion West and, and, and the push West, which happens simultaneously with the Civil War and, 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 then, and then after the Civil War, you know, the cult of the minimal state. Right. And, and I think I, I kind of misspoke or, uh, earlier, or, or I didn't fully elaborate. It's not only the you know freedom as the freedom from restraint, which is a would be a broader concept, but freedom from restraint of any government that would stop you from restraining other people's freedom, too. Right. So which is to say, like a f freedom from the restraint of a government that would that would limit your ability to you know keep indenture, you know, to keep kind yeah. of neo slavery yeah, 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 conditions. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, so yeah. I just think it's a very important. Yeah, it was a notion of freedom that was built on 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 race. This is what racial capital. This is my definition of racialized capitalism. Because capitalism isn't just an economic system, and it's not just a political system. And a lot of the scholarly and polemical debates having to do with what is racial capitalism and the relationship with racism and slavery. Capitalism is also a psychic system, and the idea of freedom never before had so many white men one such a degree of freedom putting down people of color and then and then and then measuring their freedom in relationship to the distance between the servitude of the people of color and their freedom and that was all based on 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 racialized regimes of labor going back from slavery to to, to the bracero program to nafta to the service economy today Right, and, and that's why the United States can't escape, you know, thinking in racialized terms because it's it's very understanding of itself is 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 profoundly embedded in structures of racism that it it, it that that um mm -hmm. that it can't it that it that it that it can't deal with that it can't confront and acknowledge.
it raises the question of you know what concept of freedom would be adequate to 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 kind of transcending this this kind of deadlock um you know of course i think of you know marx's classic quote right or you know about right the a notion of society to bring about a society where the free development of each would be a condition of the free development of all right yeah. very different a notion of of freedom is based in a kind of interdependency right and and, yeah. and a mutual kind of relation rather than a kind of exclusion and and oppression of others i mean avi i don't know if you want to speak to this question of freedom but i but i i was spurred to want to go back to you back when greg was talking about the historical relationship between open white supremacists including you know kkk and 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 the earliest manifestations of kind of border patrol and i mean i was wondering if you you know of course ice the current manifestation of kind of border control right has been in the you know news and in consciousness a lot i, I wonder you know, is is that still true today? Uh, you know, I mean, that 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 even at the subjective level of ideology, that there is a you know overrepresentation of of kind of people who openly subscribe to a white supremacist outlook or a KKK esque kind of affiliation within this state uh, apparatus around the border, uh, or or is that not the way that you would understand it? I mean, perhaps we've had a nationalization, as as Greg has pointed out, of that brutalization, so it doesn't have to take the form of hood wearing. Uh, KKK members, but I wonder, you know, I mean, how do you see the, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you see kind of the, the current border apparatus, the, the, the state agencies of ICE and so forth um, in relationship to this longer history. I mean, what is, again, what is kind of new or what, you know, what kind of qualitative changes have, have we seen with those, the, the policies of those agencies, not just under Trump, but just in, in this kind of, uh, perhaps it's a, you know, post 9-11 kind of moment. Uh, and what does that mean for those who want to stand in solidarity uh, with, with you know with with immigrants and 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 those uh, those uh, members of that community. So um, as to many questions, I would say yes and no. Um, and I really recommend a book. Um, maybe someone can help me look up the author because I can't do it while I'm talking. But I think the title is "When the Line Becomes a River," and the author is Francisco. I can't remember his last name. Cantu. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you didn't even have to look it up. You knew it. <laughs> Um, but maybe someone can put it in the chat too. Um, so that is definitely a part of the culture of the border patrol, that kind of KKK over right-wing racism. Um, but a good portion of the actual agents in the border patrol are Latino. Um, and Francisco Cantu um, writes his memoir of uh, why he joined the Border Patrol. Um, and I actually think he's kind of unusual in why he joined because he joined because he wanted to change it from within. Um, he joined <laughs> out of sympathy for immigrants and feeling like as, you know, as the son of an undocumented immigrant, um, feeling like the Border Patrol needs good cops who have the interests of, of immigrants in mind. Um, but he also talks about the socialization and the culture of the border patrol and the, the how no matter, so, so I would say that probably most of the Latino youth who, who train to and go into the border patrol don't necessarily do it with that attitude, but simply do it because it's a path to a job. Um, and you know, in the state university where I teach, one of the largest majors is criminal justice and the reason is not because all my students are racist and want to go around killing black people. Um, the reason is because it's a path to a job. 
yeah. um, a job that seems like it's in a growing field that's going to be secure. Um, and it's no more and no less than a path to a job. But what happens is that you're socialized into the culture of the institution once you're in the institution. And he describes that process um, and how difficult it was for him to kind of be socialized into it while also trying to critique it and in the end, leaving the Border Patrol and writing this book. But um, yeah, that's, uh, would you like to complete that, that thought uh, here? I mean, that's, so, that's, I think it's very useful intervention, but any, anything else that you'd like to add? So, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's less about the individual, the, the motivations of the individuals who join, even though there are individuals who may join because they love the KKK and they want to kill immigrants. Um, but it's less about that and more about the culture of the institution. Yeah, well said. And, and again, that book. Yeah. Yeah. You want to add? I was that just going to keep. Go, I was just going to that. You know, the, the thing about the Border Patrol and and the when it was called the Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, before it changed to ICE and Homeland Security, is that, um, you know, it's the largest law enforcement agency in the country. It's bigger than the FBI and the CIA. And unlike the FBI and the CIA, they never had a reckoning with its abuses. You know, for, for all its limitations, the church committee looked into the FBI and the CIA, and it led to some real reforms, post-Hoover reforms. The Border Patrol, operating in this liminal zone between the foreign and domestic policy or foreign domestic, has never, ever had an accounting of itself. I mean, the abuses going back from its inception are staggering. There's an author from, uh, there's an author in, that wrote for the New York Times in the 1980s that did a report and then he wrote a book, his name is John Crudson and the book is called The Tarnished Door. And he writes about, I mean, the Border Patrol was running congressmen down to bordellos in Mexico to secure funding. INS agents, uh, officials were doing that. Um, they were, they were um, I mean, they were, I mean, the, the level of, basically the Border Patrol has operated as its own cartel and with the border serving the same purpose, a way of leveraging its power vis-a-vis the US government and the Mexican government. If you look structurally, there's very little difference. I mean, in, in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, and, and the criminal activities that were involved in the border patrol. That said, the question is how has the border patrol become so politicized to become part of an arm of the Trump wing? You know, basically has become a, you know, the close, the you know, an auxiliary of, of of Trumpism, and where it's now being dispatched into these cities and these great mm -hmm. shows of of uh, of militarization. I mean, I think that's its own story. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. The, the border itself is 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 extremely unique. I think, you know. We talk about American exceptionalism, and one of the things that are extremely exceptional about the United States is its border and its relationship with Mexico. No other country, there, there is no other border in the world like it that separates such spectacular wealth from such a desperate poverty that has been the organizing line for a sector of the global economy, the North American economy, 
one of the most dynamic sectors of the North American economy. It's been central to organizing capitalism in North America. You know, policymakers deciding, well, let's bring the workers here to Bracero. Oh no, 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 let's stop that and let's bring the let's 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 change tariff policy and let's bring manufacturing there. And and you know, and it's it's and and this is the one of the things that makes it central. We have a there's a border that can't be sealed just can't be sealed. It's 2,000 miles long. You know, it's, it's indispensable to, for, you know, uh, even if it, you know, it's indispensable for, for economic reasons. Um, and yet, and yet, so we have an economic system that has, a, that, that basically makes the border unsealable. And we have a political system that is demanding its sealing, you know, demanding it's being shut down. And that's the, that's the, like, that's the main conflict that, that uh, has has given rise, I think, to Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think you put it so well there. And it, and one thing you also address in your book is the way, and perhaps it's a symptom or uh, uh, an, you know an expression of this kind of contradiction between those two dynamics, political and economic, that you have this kind of expansion of the powers given to the to border control to ICE, uh, specifically like in geographic terms. People may not know this, but as I as I recall from your book, I don't have the note in front of me, but the I believe you you mentioned that border agents are empowered within 100 miles of the border. Oh yeah, with 100 miles of the border, and, and it happens to be that the the vast majority of people in the United States live within 100 miles of one of the borders, which is to say that, <laughs> that borders, goes back years. That's not even a new thing. That right, right, not even years. new. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> but but as we have an increased militarization and politicization of of a, of an organization like ICE, it does raise right you know right, right. concerns about like a vector you know for you know kind of if people talk about where might the fascist creep be you know, that, that would certainly seem to be, you know, an angle. Um, I don't know if you or Avi have thoughts on that, but the way, you know, the way that the border, you know, entities supposedly confined to the border are being deployed in, in places we don't, at least the average American wouldn't associate with the border, right? I don't know how often we think of Portland as a, you know, a border, you know, entity or, you know, Detroit or, um, or you know, Boston or New York, right? As, I mean, all of, Florida is, all of Florida is in within that 100 mile margin. Most yeah. of Michigan, you know, all of, I mean, 80% of the, or some 70% of the country's population re live within that 100 mile margin. Yeah, it's really a sobering kind <laughs> of fact. Uh, now I'm cognizant of the time here, we're 8.07. And as generally here on Shelter and Solidarity, we like to start welcoming additional audience participant voices soon after the 8, 8 p.m. mark, the one hour mark. Before we do that today, we actually have a special addition to our normal uh, programming. We have one of our one of our new co-producers, uh, one of the co-sponsors of the show is uh, is the uh, Community Church of Boston. One of the representatives of that organization is Dean Stevens. Dean Stevens, among other things, is a musician and has a song for us on the theme of the show today that I'm gonna ask him to describe and introduce. And then he's gonna play for us. And as we listen and kind of expand our our minds in, in that music, <laughs> I encourage people to, to, to in, enter your, your interest in asking a question in the in the chat box, I already have uh, Mark and Seren on, on in the queue, but I'd love to introduce some other voices after we come back from this song. Dean Stevens, take it away. Thank you, Joe. Hi, everybody. It's Dean. Uh, I'm called the um, interim administrator of Community Church, um, but um, mostly what I do is wash bottles and. Um, and try to keep the place uh, afloat and and develop a program 
We're very proud that this newsletter came out with a bunch of wonderful Sunday morning programs, and I encourage folks to to check out our, our newsletter. It's on our website or our Facebook page. Some upcoming speakers this Sunday, Stephen Kinzer, um, November 1st, Jill Stein, uh, Mark Solomon, uh, our, one of our favorite uh, speakers on issues of politics, will be speaking right after the election. Uh, we have Norm Stockwell, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, and Howard, Dr. Howard Ehrman talking about pu public health during a pandemic. And on the subject of hope, Joe, we have Reverend June Cooper, her, her talk is about where is hope. In December, we have two wonderful programs. Chris Hedges is going to join us. And on December 13th, we give our annual Sacco and Vanzetti Award to Daniel Ellsberg. <coughs> and peppered among these um, events are wonderful uh, musicians. Uh, this Sunday, I'm very, happy to uh, to uh, welcome uh, a, a performer who whenever he is touring in this area we drop everything and host him his name is Roy Zimmerman you might have heard his his amazing satire on a Weem away that's called we vote him away that has gotten about a gazillion 10 million hits and counting on on YouTube he's going to be with us this Sunday with Steve Kinzer we also have upcoming magpie Alistair Mook uh, Emma's Revolution, Reggie Harris, David Rovix. I don't know if you know any of those names, but anyway, that's to the question of uh, Joe's question of where is hope. This is a little bit on, on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Terrific, uh, so, Dean. And, so we, join and, us. We, and our uh, producer, Linda, did put that in the chat box for folks. You know, you can find it at www.communitychurchofboston.org and you can find their, their newsletter there and, and follow up on Dean's, uh, Dean's good advice. Dean, Dean, you have some music for us? All this talk about... Oh, yep. The wall and the border made me want to sing this song for you. You might have heard it. It's there was there's a, uh, a Vermont songwriter named Anais Mitchell who wrote a play that toured around uh, little towns in Vermont for a while and then became this blockbuster on Broadway that's called Hades Town, and this is one of the songs from it. Why do we build the wall, my children, my children? Why do we build the wall? Why do we build the wall? We build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall. We build the wall to keep us free. Does the wall keep us free, my children, my children? How does the wall keep us free? How does the wall keep us free? The wall keeps out the enemy, and we build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall. We build the wall to keep us free. enemy, my children, my children, who do we call the enemy? Who do we call the enemy?
the wall to keep us free And the wall keeps out the enemy That's why we build a wall, we build a wall My children, my children, because they want what we have got. Because we have and they have not, because they want what we have got. And the enemy is poverty, and the wall keeps out the enemy. And we build the wall to keep us free, that's why we build the wall. They would want my children, my children. What have we got that they would want? What have we got that they would want? We got a wall to work upon. We've got work and they have none, my children, my children. And the work is never done, my children, my children. And the war is never won, my children, my children. The enemy is poverty, and the wall keeps out the enemy. And we build the wall to keep us free, that's why we build the wall, we build the wall to keep us free. That's why we build the wall, we build the wall to keep us free. We build the wall to keep us free. We build the wall. Thank you, Dean Stevens. You're getting the, the silent virtual clap and the electronic, the electric thumbs up as we've, we've all come to to love and the and the virtual clap. Thank you so much, Dean. Uh, really, really beautiful voice and a and a very appropriate song, and uh, some important announcements. Dean, I never heard you sing before, but I can guarantee you I will hear you sing again one way or another, assuming you've recorded it somewhere. Um, okay, uh, so that has given us some time to reflect, to soak in, and to to generate some questions that we have, questions and comments for our for our two great speakers and for everyone who's here today. Uh, I'd like to call on our first group. Generally, I like to take the questions in small batches to give uh, the chance to have a number of different voices. And then hopefully we can do a couple rounds of this. And uh, so first I'd like to, to call on Mark Soderstrom, one of the co-producers of the show. And after that, Seren Mudliar, another co-producer who has a, is coming at some things from a different angle. Of course, uh, Greg's written on other books as well. So uh, Gre Greg, just as a heads up, we might be asking some questions to you that deal with your Central American research as well. Uh, and after that, we'll have Dave Burt. So Mark. Well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to listen to you so far this evening and I look forward to the conversation going on. Uh, this is primarily motivated by Greg's book, but I think Avi can also respond to the issues. Um, one of the things that I was reading through your book, Greg, that I sort of struggled with is that at times you seem to be wanting to draw in a comparison between sort of Turner's optimistic inclusive frontier 
and Trump's pessimistic exclusive wall. And at other times you sort of step away from that to one degree. Um, and I'm kind of wondering how you would respond to some of the critics and historians who would deny any positive aspect to Turner's frontier. Um, people like David W. Noble, who is gonna write that uh, the two world metaphor that Turner is living in between a corrupt European complexity and a natural American simplicity even fails Turner, right? Even Turner can't pull off that division. He never actually writes, turns the thesis into a monograph, right? That, that gives any kind of promise, he fails to do it. Um, but even more so, I'm thinking of Reginald Horseman's work on race and manifest destiny, who engages the racial ideologies of the frontier and people like Josiah Knott and Strong and Roosevelt. And that book I mean, stops one step short of suggesting that the American ideology of the frontier is parallel or synonymous with Germans' attitudes towards Lebensraum, right? Um, there's a, a perhaps allegorical story that at a conference, Horseman was actually asked, when you wrote your book, did you suggest that America was fascist? And Horseman is said to have responded, of course, I think American ideology is fascist, but if I used the word, Harvard wouldn't have published the book. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, how do you, where, where do you engage between this dialectic of frontier versus wall and, and yet those who really are going to say that the wall and the frontier are the same? Um, and I should let it go to, to Sir Yen or however you want to Should I answer that question? Or you know, that's we... a pretty meaty one. Why don't, why don't we do that? And then, you know, uh, and then we'll come back to the, the next okay, two. I'll, I'll I think just that... be very quick. You know, obviously there's been lots of critiques of the turn in thesis. Uh, particularly by the new left, that was a kind of, you know, the, the, I would say this, I would identify an early generation of new left historians who understood the frontier as a way, a good way to think with. They would, for them, it was a way of talking about capitalism and capitalism as an expansion in an American vernacular. I mean, I think Turner himself was uh, taking continental philosophical categories and ideas and translating them into a new language of the pioneer and whatnot. But I think what he was talking about was talking about the inherent nature of capitalism to expand and all the politics that go with it. Um, I think all of the, you know, obviously I think all the post new left critiques of Turner that, that looked for um, all sources of political culture that wasn't reducible to the frontier expansion are interesting and good. But I also think that the Turner's thesis, Turner's argument operates on two levels. One, it's a scholarly article, it's a sociological argument uh, uh, that makes an argument. And on the other hand, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's an ideology and it creates an ideology. And I was, I was using it more as uh, uh, understanding it as an ideology. I would, I would you know, I, I um, I talked about the optimism and the and the grandeur and the power of a U.S. expansion because it's fairly undeniable that the U.S. empire was <laughs> the is, it has been the greatest empire, most wealthiest and powerful empire in world history, and it was creative in all sorts of ways. But I throughout the whole thing, I ran through that underneath. You know, with expansion came bloody dispossession and race violence and terror. And that was what had to be denied and marginalized and turned into this myth or ideology 
gave even people who acknowledge the violence a way to imagine that to acknowledge the violence to imagine it being increasingly pushed to the fringe as the United States moved out into the world. I mean, basically, we're just talking about German romanticism here. And of course, it's Nazism and fascism. I mean, Kissinger, you know, it was a subject of another book, Kissinger. Kissinger's romantic subjectivism, you know, was was basically was basically a kind of German philosophy that 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 was very um, influential with in fascist thought. And and there's a there's a lot of literature that 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 ties around the U.S. experience with the Nazi experience, Lebensraum and and. Turner and and, um, and 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 explicit laws of racial segregation that were adopted by that were adopted by the Nazis and and the policy of you know of, of, of removal being understood as as justifying and 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 also the things like the Monroe Doctrine as well beyond that also. Yeah, lots we could dig into there, and perhaps we will cycle back. I think there's certainly a his, you know, his or his a whole historiographical historiographical conversation that we could get into there as well. But before we do that, let's go to Seren with a with a question that may take us in a, a slight swerve, but hopefully one that enriches the conversation. And then and then Dave Burt. Actually, Joe, I have two questions. One from Facebook. Uh, uh, but right. but both questions are relatively less meaty than a question from Mark. Uh, my question, uh, one of the things is uh, that I learned from Empire's workshop was the way in which uh, there are things that cross the border. So the expansion of the evangelicals into Central and Latin America in general uh, sort of had a, a blowback in the sense of uh, helping reconstruct the, the right wing in the United States and providing it with a mass base uh, and a, a very sharp internationalism of an evangelical nature. And uh, at the same time, it, it has fostered also immigration from uh, Latin America. And uh, surely there, there are tensions there in that uh, a lot of Latin American immigrants who are also evangelicals uh, now butt up against these uh, exclusionary policies. Uh, how do you, how are we, what are we to make of this? And, uh, and how does this help us undermine the, the simple polarity between the inside and the outside, uh, between this side of the wall and that side of the wall? Um, the second question, which in some ways is related, how are we to understand the intensification of federal persecution of undocumented immigrants in tandem with the expansion of the highly exploitative H-2A visa program? That question came from Anthony Zanino on Facebook. Well, maybe, maybe Abi would like to answer that question about that second question. Uh... <laughs> you should I answer it first? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's probably pretty quick. Um, <laughs> I think they are absolutely two sides of the same coin. That is, um, this is not the first time, if you look back to um, like mass deportations during the Bracero program, um, the, two, the two justify each other and work together to construct Mexicans as um, unwanted, illegal, exploitable, and good only for seasonal migrant labor. 
um, it's, it's really very ideologically coherent and fits smack in the center of the US history of immigration policy towards Mexicans. So, okay, go ahead. Thank you. Back to Greg for the other part of that it was a, a surprisingly, not surprisingly meaty question from Serena. Yeah, that despite, despite saying it wasn't. Um, well, first of all, let me say that I have a, a revised edition of Empire's Workshop coming out in early, early in 2021 that uh, tries to make it, uh, detach it a little bit from the, from the politics of 9-11 and, uh, and, and the Iraq war, uh, because I, I, um, I, I feel like there was a lot to argue, there were a lot of arguments in that book, but, but um, it got, it got dated fast as, as students started asking who George W. Bush was. <laughs> and uh, and what, what's the Bush doctrine? So I tried to rewrite it in a way that made it a little bit more useful as a textbook, as a kind of overview. Um, uh, the question, the question is, the the was the question? Did the question have to do with with the way evangelicals uh, are hitting limits now in terms of um, in terms of what they're able to do despite their Cold War alliance with the conservative movement or or did it was it more about just the the general relationship between foreign and domestic power? I, I was interested in how the character of the evangelicals have changed with immigration now that we have substantial populations of uh, Latinx folks from Latin America yeah. also evangelicals as a consequence of their successes. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Look, I mean, you know, history, history, <laughs> things change. <laughs> you know, history changes, right? Like a lot of the most radical Christians, you know, started out as Axiom Catholica catechists that were that was sent explicitly sent to be a bulwark against against socialism in the countryside, and confronted with the reality of poverty, they 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 became much more radical. Um, you know, so things change. You know, things change. The dialectic keeps moving on. Um, <laughs> keeps turning. I don't. I don't. I don't really know the state of evangelical migrants. I do think that it is a terrain, a contested terrain that's up for grabs in terms of what it means. Um, certainly, it is within the Catholic Church. Like the the defense of of, of immigrants is is central to, to 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 the progressive wing of the Catholic Church, and certainly has to. Um, has to come into conflict with more, more, more conservative concerns and right-wing concerns of the Catholic Church. You know, so I think there's ongoing tensions uh, 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 that that you know that people bring with them. You know, and 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 their ideas that they bring with them. I mean, if evangelicals are us wind up, you know, in a union and they wind up fighting for a union. Does that change their politics? I mean, there's a lot of Cuban migrants in Las Vegas unions that hate Castro, but are like on the front lines of, of, of organizing casinos. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, and, and all of this is the way say is I don't know this, I don't know the specific, I don't have any specific answers because I'm not that close on the ground. Um, but, you know, that would be the, that would be the more overview speculative answer. Right, thanks, Saran. Do you want to respond to that? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you put out a lot there. You want to, you want to kind of follow up? Not, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in this topic, especially as we we consider places like Florida and uh, and, and even uh, Nevada in terms of the this current election. 
And so I was interested in how the super disciplined evangelicals who've adopted methods from the left are able to, um, to exercise uh, at least voting discipline over their populations. Yeah, yeah, but but to what degree does 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 just a, a, a basic decency and humanity mitigate the ideology of of an alliance with the right? And and I don't, I mean, I don't know. I think it's up for grabs. I mean, you know, we, we all know the history of twentieth century history in which different ethnic groups became incorporated into the Republican Party. But you can only privatize the New Deal once. I mean, you know, I, I don't know how. I don't know what mechanisms. The, the 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 Republican Party would have to grab a large slice of, of the Latino vote. I mean, you know, other than other than the the obvious politics of Venezuela and Cuba and Honduras and 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 religion, as you say, but religion is religion is a site of of, of profound contradictions, and I, I think that can go either way. I mean, I think in the, look at the Mormon Church. I think the Mormon Church is is um, I think I think that it, it, you know, you have on the one hand you have Mormons uh, writing some of those harsh laws in Arizona that led to a lot of this stuff. On the other hand, you have uh, Mormons being very concerned with the the the, the punitive nature of, of of immigration policy because so many of the so much of the flock are from are from these countries. So. Yeah, and I, I think I mean you you frequently engage with the the question of of or the no, the notion of the uh, the expansion as a safety valve, right? Coming out throughout this book, but you also at a couple places I forget the alternative metaphor used, but you do say sometimes the expansion could actually, of course, increase the very things that supposedly the expansion was supposed to resolve, right? I forget use another yeah. alternative mechanical metaphor. I can't remember which it is. Um, I think you only use it a couple times, but yeah. Uh, I don't well, and, and, and it only works as long as you can keep it, keep it going, right? So the right. trauma and racism generated by war on the frontier in, in the Philippines or in Nicaragua or in, you know, right. or in Haiti, you know, can, can you know, the, it, as, long as, it, right. as long as it can be rolled over into the next war can right. be, you know, so yes, war creates even more extremism. Right. But um, but as long as expand, you know, it's not a coincidence the war is coming home now, right? Right, and in some sense, the the the, the wall will never be tall enough in this. Sense, and the wall right? will, yeah, the will wall never will be tall be. enough till it it becomes a bubble. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Dave Bird. I believe Dave Dave B has a has a question that brings us again back to the present in some really acute way. Dave, thanks for being on the show again here, and I know you have uh, a question for our guests uh, before before we move towards wrapping up. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was thinking about a couple things that that uh, the, uh, that that uh, Avi and Greg uh, said earlier. The one was the you know I had a very I had a very punchy question in the t in the text in terms of action now with the situation now. What like you guys have provided a lot of historical perspective, um, like extraordinarily fine historical perspective, and uh, things that happened over the co course of many years, but. In terms of uh, where uh, you know the, the the border zone, the border zone, uh, the border patrol issue, I thought of I was thinking of homage to Catalonia a little bit in terms of like the plague of initials and just trying to understand the different that 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 he's he's in that moment in the book where he says that trying to understand the different security agencies because right like in the United States like a lot of people in that come into 
you know, discussion spaces like this, they tend to be, you know, leftists or professors or other folks at the same, you know, but also with a lot of experience related to prisons and security and that kind of stuff. But, 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 but also there are, there's a whole population in this country that are prison guards or police or other people. And these agencies are not, not only do they have that hundred mile class, but they're, they're also feuding in ways now as things, as the security state partially collapses that, that, you know, often even like shows like this don't talk about the details of that. And I'm thinking about that in terms of like, what is a good, uh, I'm not trying to say like, you know, go on record in terms of, you know, how to deal with this agency, this agency, this agency, but what is, what, what can, what is a good action plan, uh, especially on the Mex the U.S. Mexican, Mexican border, which has been, there've been like thousands of progressive people sheltering people there, you know, open conflict at the border, assassinations, like way higher in the last three years than, 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 you know, when I was, you know, I'm in my mid forties when I was, you know, when I was in my twenties, even though, even with the Central American wars of the eighties and nineties. So um, what, what, what do you guys see as a, uh, in terms of like live, uh, live actions to defend when obviously the federal government is in, the US federal government is in terrible shape right now? Yeah, thank you, David. Kind of teasing out two aspects, right? Um, <clears throat> contradictions within this apparatus and then resistance that's ongoing and solidarity actions. We always like to be able to point people to towards things that are being done, can be done, efforts that people can support on this show. Uh, we're interested in trying to change the world, not only understand it. So yeah, Greg and Avi, where would you point us uh, to in response to Dave's question? Shall I go first? Oh. Please. <laughs> so I don't think there's one single set of actions or path. We need a spectrum, a multiplicity of actions that are going to deal with the short term and the long term. Um, and, you know, each of us is coming from a different place and has different skills and talents and interests. And one of the things I always tell my students is that the most effective form of political action is going to be one that you're going to stick with over the course of your lifetime. This is not something that with one demonstration or one action we're going to change. We need people, um, los que luchan toda la vida. Ellos son, son los imprescindibles. Um, the, the claro, claro que sí. Así es. Así es la vida. No. Y la pobreza es real. Sí. Sí. Um, so, so it's a lifelong struggle. Um, and, you know, I don't really think I'm going to see the solutions in my lifetime. I don't know if my children are going to see the solutions in their lifetime or if they're even going to see the collapse in their lifetime. Um, but that doesn't mean we can't, we don't have to keep struggling. So what do we have to do? We have to get Trump out of office. Um, I think we have to vote for Joe Biden. And then we have to continue with the struggles that we're engaged in now because they're not really gonna change after uh, if, if we get Trump out of office. So, you know, there's, you mentioned a couple of particular kinds of actions on the border, um, civil disobedience in support of undocumented people, handing out water in the desert, providing medical care. Those are really important actions, but those aren't the only actions. We need actions at the political level, national level, as well as local actions. And 
even changing US immigration law is not going to solve the problem because global economic inequality is the problem. So we have to think about US foreign policy um, and US economic policy and climate change. Um, I mean, there's so many things that go into making this immigration problem. It's not gonna be solved with one, one single policy change. Um, so, you know, there really is no answer to your question. The answer is everything. That's that's my answer. Thank you. Avi. Yeah, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't have really much to add. There's obviously a lot. A lot of organizing going on at the border. There's 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 this cross this transnational organizing among indigenous peoples to try to stop the wall. There's these these pictures of heroic people trying to stop the destruction of these beautiful these beautiful natural landmarks. There's a lot of this the Samaritans. There's no more deaths. There's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of um, organizing going on on the ground. I, I think that the the trick would be to connect it to a bigger picture. And the the danger is that if Biden is elected, that we just go back to the status quo. And and I think that the the border patrol has revealed itself to be not just an abusive agency in terms of uh, physical abuse and in terms of shootings and in terms of racism. That it's become increased, it's become it's become highly ideologized, infiltrated almost by 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 whatever you want to call them, white supremacists, nationalists, um, and I think that um, the the terms have to shift in terms of the, of uh, of how we talk about police violence and sheriff violence and um, and and border patrol violence that that um, that you know there really is a they're really the, the, these these um, these constant these 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 police agencies have become very much very much aligned with a right wing view of the world that I think is 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 very dangerous and is the danger of going back you know just of, of Biden being elected and then you know and then some you know some some tepid reform around you know, around around whatever and, and, and not really getting at the heart of the problem. Mm. Yeah, um, so much, so much there and so much that we could continue to dive into. I want to just point out to our to our audience participants, this is a kind of a last call for questions. I understand that one of our uh, speakers needs to go shortly, but uh, we have Avi's blessing to continue the conversation for a few moments without her. But thank you so much, Avi. For being here, if you do need to uh, to drop off in the next you know few seconds, uh, we've it's been great having you back, and we hope to, to do it again to do it again hey, soon. Thanks thank a lot. Thank you, Avi Chomsky. Thank you. And check out her new thanks, book Avi. and her old books. Nice seeing you. Good to great. see you. Yeah. Um. So, so much on the table here. Um. I um. I, I wanted to ask you, Greg. I mean, obviously, there's a limit to any slogan uh, and any kind of banner term. You know. Uh, but do you support the call or in the framing of, of abolition in discussing ICE? Do you think that that's a useful framework or a, 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 a mass demand that, uh, you know, that, that, that has substance enough, legs enough, or, you know, that gets at something real as opposed to suggesting more humane voter policy or something? Do you think that this call to abolish ICE, which, which has been put up in you know in, in recent years more prominent. I mean I think I I do because but but I think it also I, and it's it's easy to say this but hard to actually do it has to be represented within its historical term how how un un 
unthinkable it would have been to have an organization like ICE operating even as far as most recently as the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, you know, you go back, you go back to the 80s and around a lot of the debates around, around that's when the people started talking about sealing the border, the 70s and 80s. And, um, and you had, you had a lot of concern that, um, that the, that the unsatisfiable demand to seal the border is the border cannot be sealed. I mean, you can have maybe you know, I don't know, 200,000 men standing arm to arm in eight hour shifts, and maybe that would seal the border. But even that, I'm sure they'd figure out ways to get around. But the border is unsealable. But you have this, you have this, you have this constant demand to seal the border and, and Democrats and Republicans have encouraged it in their own ways. You know, we agree with border security. Yes, we have to, we have to, we will, you know, we want a smart wall or whatever it is that they want. Um, and, and that just leads to the increasing militarization of immigration. And there were a number of people in the 1970s and 1980s that basically said that if fascism comes to the United States, it's not going to come because of, uh, you know, a mobilized, threatening working class that has to be clamped down by jackboots. Uh, it's going to come because of, um, of this expansion of the Border Patrol. You know, uh, John Crudson, the reporter I mentioned earlier, said, you know, who wants a KGB? Uh, Leonard Chapman, who was the head of the INS in the 1970s, who was involved in the, he was no dove, he was, he was a hard line, and he, start, he, in, he was the one who started using the word illegal alien, um, uh, but he was worried about what it meant to constantly encroach and expand, encroach on civil rights and expand the power of the Border Patrol in the name of immigration interdiction. And so now we have ICE, now we have the Border Patrol operated in Portland. Now we have, you know, this hundred mile range in which the constitution doesn't hold. Now we have, um, you know, uh, 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 I, you know, uh, it, in, in the 1980s, it was considered radical to, 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 to suggest that the, that, the, that the INS had the power to enter the workplace and, and, and start harassing workers at their workplace. I mean, it was, it was un, that was understood as fascistic. And, you know, here we are 50 years later, and that's the norm. You know, we, you know, we have the Border Patrol everywhere. We have ICE everywhere. Uh, setting aside all of the abuses, the setting up the different traps, you know, using COVID as an excuse to to wrap, to, to deport take, deport people, um, you know, the, just just if, if if somebody were to go back and look at what was considered the norm in the in 1985, say, and look at what is happening today, they'd be shocked at how much power an organization like ICE has. So about, yes, yes, I think ICE has to be abolished and a more honest discussion about the role of, 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 of immigrant labor in an, in, in a, in an economy that, um, that depends on them has to be had. I mean, look, capital, capital is free. I mean, NAFTA, NAFTA freed capital and it freed commodities to go back and forth across border at will. But there was no provision for labor, not even a provision for a for a guest labor program. 
you know, and 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 that was the point. The point was to turn Mexico into a into a nation of captive laborers. And late and 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 you know what is it? Twenty something years after NAFTA, and now we've got this new thing. Labor, the 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 label the wage labor ranking of Mexico was one of the lowest in the world. You know, NAFTA didn't weight lift wages in Mexico. All it did was provide a captive labor force for U.S. capital, and 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 uh, and and so the phrase "abolish ICE" has a lot of history behind it that has to be unpacked in order for people to to kind of to defend it in a way that makes sense. Absolutely, the need to historicize uh, the the term in, in in order to really take it apart and understand why it needs to be taken apart and. And uh, I think it is shocking, as you say, you know, to look back even just to what to me just seem doesn't seem like that long ago. I was, you know, I was a child of, in the 80s and to think, right, how, how radically the, the center of American politics can shift over over such a period. Um, really, I think, very important reminder that, you know, however people are approaching this election and, and, and wanting to focus on Trump and getting out Trump and Trumpism, uh, you, you can't put it all on Trump. This kind of fascistic creep in American society has much deeper no. roots and a longer history, often a bipartisan uh, varnish, but it really does point to deeper contradictions, economic and political, that I think the work of scholar activists like, you know, Greg and, and Avi is so important to grasping in, in, you know, historically in theory, so we can put it into practice. I'm not seeing any uh, questions in the queue. Uh, Dean, I know you wanted to speak to the evangelical question. Um, I, 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 was, I was thinking we might, we might pick that up another time, uh, unless you want to speak briefly to it right now. We, do, we did have that in the queue. Dean, would you like to brief, make a brief comment on the evangelical question uh, sure, that came just up earlier? Thank you. Really quick, uh, myself being a son of evangelical missionaries in Costa Rica and, and a frequent traveler to El Salvador and, and Costa Rica, um, just thought I'd, I'd comment that um, uh, it's it's a very complicated uh, mix of things. I mean, there's this this huge wash of evangelical uh, mega church like stuff going on. That's that's all about um, fancy audio visuals and and all about. Um, thousands of people in, in, in the audience, uh, and, and it's also associated with right-wing politics in, in all of the countries, and it's, it's very powerful. Um, yeah. And uh, I've, I've, I've also been really interested in the, um, uh, the evangelical and, and the Catholic churches uh, in immigrant communities here in, in Boston, and it's sort of the the undocumented Salvadorans that I know here are sort of 50-50. They, they go in either direction, Catholic and, and evangelical. The evangelical ones they are, are definitely more of a, a right-wing stripe and right-wing message from, from the churches that they're, they're listening to. But again, it's a very complicated thing. I just wanted to tell about my own history, which is... Um, my parents are very, very conservative evangelicals, uh, and my uncle and aunt, also missionaries in Costa Rica, who were radicals. He was a Marxist theologian. 
he called himself a radical evangelical. Yeah, they yeah. moved to Nicaragua in, in 1983 to uh, wow. be part of the Sandinista revolution. Um, and uh, just, and that's, that's within this, uh, this um, evangelical thing that has this, uh, this uh, is painted with a very right wing brush that um, the, I just wanted to just stick that crack in, in there that there are some important exceptions to that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Without doubt. Thank, thank you for that, Dean. So I think we are moving to, to conclusion here. Uh, Dean, maybe I think next next show we'll have to have you do two songs, one in the middle and one at the end here, but I'm not putting <laughs> you on the spot right now. Uh, but I appreciate this, uh, you know, adding the, the artistic side to, to our deep dive here. Uh, thanks to, to Greg Grandin for being here. Uh, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Avi Chomsky as well. Greg, really, you've offered us so much today, and you've offered us even more uh, in this book, which I, I can't recommend enough. It is not only insightful in ways that Greg has, has touched on today, but it is very, very well written. I, I believe that if you pick it up, you won't be able to put it down, which is not a book, something you can say. Uh, about so many books that are written and that are so timely on on issues of politics and, and history. So thank you, Greg, for being here. Thanks so uh, much, Joe. Lovely the, conversation. Thank absolute, you. Absolutely. Joe, can I can I poke in one more little thing? All right, very brief. Keep it brief, Dean. Um, you're right. You you talked about where's the hope, and I just am bubbling over with something that happened today. We have ten um, members behind bars at Community Church. We got word this morning that Tommy Rosa, one of them, was was released. He had fought, for, maintained his innocence for, for 30 years in jail, and he was part of That's the great. Innocence Project attorney. He's free. And here, here's, the, here's the kicker. I'm going to pick up Arnie King to take him tomorrow to the celebration. Arnie King is another one of our members behind bars who's free. He's the opposite story. He's, um, he's a guy who spent 48 years in jail and um, became this model citizen after admittedly committing a crime. So there's the hope. Walls can fall down. And, um, and why do we build the walls? So they will fall down. Yeah. Thank you, Dean. That's, that's good news. I'm really glad. Thanks for sharing that. And, and that is a, a point of hope, absolutely. And it's also a reminder that the, the walls and the cages are, are not confined to people who are immigrants, uh, that this system in its systemic crisis, uh, in its death spiral, uh, is, is increasingly militarizing and criminalizing people born in the United States as well as people born outside of it. And as much as that might not seem like a beam of hope, it actually, in the generalizing and the expansion of the layers of people that are actually being increasingly directly and indirectly affected by these most by this border brutalism and and the general uh, criminalization uh, and dehumanization in American society and culture, there may be hope in that. Right, we end up with more people who see uh, themselves being victimized or morally, whether politically, materially, or morally, uh, by the system than than in any way benefiting from it. Trump's, you know rhetoric of the coal and cruelty as signs of freedom to to one side. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here for this, what has been almost a two hour, very robust conversation. I want to welcome you all to our next show, which will be November 5th. We have a terrific lineup and perhaps a growing lineup uh, of people who are going to be responding to the election uh, of just a couple of days earlier. We have yeah. Liza Featherstone, 
uh, author off and uh, you know author of books as well as a regular writer for Nation magazine as well as Jacobin, a uh, great labor feminist journalist and investigative reporter. We also have Jill Stein, a very important figure, often worked with the Green Party, and Ben Mansky, a very important thinker and activist on issues of democratic what it means to do revolutionary or deep democratic work within within this so uh, undemocratic, limited democratic society. Uh, that's going to be the fifth, always 7 p.m. here on Thursday nights. Uh, we hope you'll join us not only to hear from Liza, Jill, and Ben, but also to, to share your own thoughts on what may be a painful and protracted uh, and even unprecedented election process, as I'm sure many of you are familiar. Come to Shelter and Solidarity, not just to hear perspectives from people who have studied these things, but to, to share your own views and to create a little hope by by sharing our, you know, by coming together, as we say on Shelter and Solidarity, stay, stay, uh, connect, stay engaged, uh, stay connected, and stay together. Shelter and Solidarity. I want to thank my co-producers, Seren Mudliar, Linda Liu, D Dean Stevens, uh, Tim Sheard, Kira Mudliar, Mark Soderstrom, and our and our co-sponsoring organizations in Cuentro Cinco, affectionately known as E5, uh, Center for Organizing in Downtown Boston, Community Church of Boston. Hardball Press, a publisher of Working Class Stories, and the journal, the peer-edited but activist journal, Socialism and Democracy, of which several of us are actually on the board of. Also, my, my partner and co-producer, Linda Liu, who has been doing such a great job in the chat box, keeping us all informed about the various names being dropped throughout this program. Shelter and solidarity, folks. Stay safe. See you, see you not next week, but on uh, November, uh, November 5th. And until then, uh, take care, everyone. And um, thanks, Joe.